honestly, I've, I've been feeling this word on my heart for the past several weeks. <clears throat> and I just want to try to give to you, I feel like the Lord has given to me. Um, I do have a word from the Lord. I know this is a tumultuous time, but there's nothing like a word from God, a fresh word from the Lord. From Acts chapter 5 and verse 40, and then we're going to go to Acts chapter 8. Acts 5 and verse 40 says, And to him they agreed, and when they had called the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in that name, of, in the name of Jesus, and let them go. And they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And daily in the temple and in every house, they ceased not to teach and preach Jesus Christ. And then to the book of Acts, chapter 8, in verse 1, we're going to read down through verse 4. And Saul was consenting unto his death, and at that time there was a great persecution against the church which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering into every house and hailing men and women, committing them to prison. Therefore, they that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. So a little bit of context about this text in Acts chapter 8. First of all, what... What's just happened is the stoning of Stephen. Now, keep in mind that prior to this point, uh, at least under Jewish law, you could not be stoned except for certain types of sins. And so this would have been a first time, at least as far as we know, that somebody would have been stoned for doing something good, which was preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they stoned Stephen. That was a horrible, bloody sight. But shortly after that, there was a young man by the name of Saul. We know the rest of the story, what happened with him shortly after that in the very next chapter. But, but at this point, he was hailing men and women and entering into as many houses as he could with the permission of the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin. And he was committing Christians to prison. And so it would seem like the church was in a bad spot. But the Bible says they went everywhere and preached the word of the Lord. I want to talk to you for a few minutes on this title, The Early Church's Attitude Toward Persecution. And so imagine, if you will, uh, if the above scene and what I just described had happened today in America. And to one of our own preachers, to one of our apostolic, or really not just apostolic, but any, any kind of preacher of the gospel. Imagine, if you will, if that had happened here in America if they were beaten and commanded never to speak in that name again. Now, we know that there would be likely lots and lots of angry Facebook posts. Uh, there would be lots of news media on the scene. Lawsuits would be filed. Lawyers would be involved. After all, this is America, and we have rights. And all of that is true, as it should be. However, I think that we can learn a lot from the early church's attitude towards persecution and what they endured. First of all, let me say this. That during times of persecution and when the first century church did not have the favor of the government, they experienced a great deal of revival. As a matter of fact, it could even be said that there never would have likely had been an Apostle Paul without that persecution taking place in the early church. And furthermore, later on in Acts 8, we see that Philip... Because the disciples and the, and, and the disciples of the Lord were scattered everywhere, Philip ended up going down to the city of Samaria and preaching Christ unto them. 
and the entire city of Samaria received the gospel. Because, and as a result of this persecution, Samaria received the gospel. Amen. And Peter said this in 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 12. He said, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened unto you. But rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye also may be glad with exceeding joy. And then he says this, If you be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are you, for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part, he is evil spoken of, but on your part, he is glorified. Amen. Let me just make this statement here today, that if the whole world speaks well of the church, then we're likely preaching the wrong gospel. If the world can stand up, all of it, and say, amen, and we feel good about that message, then we are very likely preaching the wrong message. Because we know that the Apostle Paul said, for example, that that the preaching of the cross, the preaching of the gospel, is to them that perish and it's foolishness. It's old-fashioned. It's outdated. It's something to be cast out into the streets and and to not uh, be be discussed anymore. After all, times have changed, and people don't believe that way anymore. Morals have changed. The line has moved. And so to them that perish, the preaching of the gospel is foolishness. It's nonsense, and it doesn't make any sense. But God's word never changes. The church experiences its greatest revival during times of persecution and no governmental favor. For the apostle Peter said, for the spirit of glory and of God rests Upon you during those times. Let me go to the book of Psalms 125 and verse 3. Where the psalmist said this. For the right of the wicked shall not rest upon the lot of the righteous. Lest the righteous put forth their hands unto iniquity. I read a lot of commentaries. And I looked back into the Hebrew about you know this verse. And tried to understand it as best as I could. And there were a lot of people that felt like that this verse means. You know since we know that the church obviously has been persecuted uh, through history. But there's a lot of people that feel like this means that it won't continue to be persecuted. That eventually persecution is going to let up and uh, and God is going to give his people peace. And that's probably true. But I think there's another side of this as well that we need to look at. And it is this, is that when the rod of the wicked is on the righteous, some people's faith tend to fail them. And so often God, because of that, he disallows persecution from happening. In other words, God has to trust you with hardships. And to have no greater example of this, we can look to the Lord himself, of course, but we can also look to the great apostle Paul. In the book of Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, he went through one place where he talked about, I've been, you know, 30, like what, three times I've received uh, 40 stripes, save one, I've been shipwrecked. You know, I've I've came in contact with, uh, with robbers and perils and all these things. And, you know, Paul wasn't exactly having a walk in the park when he preached the gospel. Uh, he had stripes put on his back, 39 stripes, three times at least that we know of. He was beaten, put in prison. He went hungry many times. He went without food many times. But God had to trust him with that hardship. And the level of ministry, of anointed ministry that the Apostle Paul had through those times was likely a direct result of those hardships. Because in one place, Paul even came to the point where he said, Lord, I want you to take it from me. And the Lord said, I'm not, because, you know, these things have to come into your life. But through your weakness, I am made strong. 
Amen. Hey, my grace is sufficient for you, and that's all that you need. And so, so the great apostle Paul had all these things happen to him, and so I believe that nothing comes our way unless it arrives by, rather, I believe that nothing that comes our way arrives by accident, but it but it allows, but it's allowed by God. God allows it to happen, and He meticulously measures out how much our faith can handle and how much we need to get us into the next season. God processes everything in our lives. When Satan, for example, came to put duress on Job, God had put a hedge around Job. And God has a hedge around each of us. Nothing can come into our life except it goes through that hedge. And even Whenever it seemed like God removed that hedge, yet still he had a hedge around Job because God told Job, don't take his life. I've still got plans for Job. And throughout the book of Job, we can see from Job's perspective why he got angry and depressed. But through it all, God had a divine design. And none of those things surprised God. Let me tell you this, that God has a divine design for everything that's happening in your life and in our world and in our country. Everything that comes into our life comes by the standard of divine design. And nothing that God does, and nothing comes that God does not process by his perfect ordained will. Whatever lies ahead as a church, as a nation, or as individuals, I want to tell you this morning a word of encouragement that God has a divine design. Through it all, it may seem like havoc. It may seem like nothing is going around in your life, but I promise you, God has a divine design for everything that's going on in your life right now. You know, Ezra was uh, stirred up to go and rebuild the house of God at Jerusalem after they had been in Babylonian captivity for so long. After many years in, in captivity to Babylon. And so they began the strenuous, arduous work of beginning to build the house of God. I don't know how far along they came. But at some point, uh, they came to a point where some of their enemies began to write letters to the king of Persia. And say, you know, these Jews, they're doing a bad thing. And, and in the past, insurrection has been made of this city. And this city was one that ruled the world or ruled over this area. And so... And, and so the king of Cyrus wrote to them and told them that they needed to stop the building of the house of God. Look at what this says, Ezra 4 and verse 23. Now when the copy of the king Xerxes' letter was read before Rahum and Shemeshai, the scribe, and their companions, they went up in haste to Jerusalem unto the Jews and made them to cease by force and power. Then ceased the work of the house of God, which is at Jerusalem. So it ceased unto the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Now there's a grave problem with this. Because God had already told them and told Ezra that, that they were destined to build the house of God, which was at Jerusalem, which was in disarray. And when the Jews' enemies saw the temple was being rebuilt, they stirred up the king of Persia against them to write a letter and demand that they stop building the temple of the Lord. But they already had a word from God to not stop, to keep going, to keep pushing forward. And it's amazing how they allowed circumstances around them to intimidate them to the point where they stopped building the work of God. And the Bible says that, that they stopped building it unto the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. That is about 15 years that they lost 
in the building of the temple of God. For 15 years, nobody could go up to Jerusalem and worship at the house of God. For 15 years, as far as we know, there was no way to get their sins remitted and to get their lives right with God. For 15 years, they stopped working because they were intimidated by a spirit of fear. Until... Ezra 5 and verse 1 says, Then the prophets Haggai, the prophet, and Zechariah, the son of Ido, prophesied unto the Jews that were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel, even unto them. And so what God did was he stirred up these prophets Haggai and Zechariah who would come and say, Look, you've been, you've been lackadaisical long enough. You've sat on your leaves long enough. I know that things are bad. You haven't got a word yet as far as you know. Uh, the word has not changed from the king. But God wants you to know that if you'll take a step forward of faith, then God will be with you. And God God is not going to let you down. He's going to make sure that you're able to do what he's told you to do. Amen. And so it didn't matter uh, to God that the king had told them to stop because they were not supposed to stop. So if they had taken due care and went to the king and informed him of their true goal, he likely would have been willing to let them continue. And let me tell you this, we cannot let adverse circumstances stop us from doing the will of God. We cannot stop from doing what God wants us to do. But some of the builders that were building that temple were as willing to let the work cease as the adversaries were to make it cease. And so at some periods in history, the church has suffered more from the coldness of its friends than from the heat of its enemies. We suffer more not from what the government does or not from what the world says or, or any other factor outside of the church. But if the church does not fulfill the will of God, it's not because of adverse circumstances. It's because of the coldness of those that are within it. And God help us if we ever reach that point where we are not fervent about doing what God has destined for us to do. Look at with me to Revelation chapter 18 and verse 10 where, uh, where it says that they were standing afar off. For the fear of her torment, saying, Alas, alas, that great city Babylon, that mighty city, for in one hour is thy judgment come. And the merchants of the earth shall weep and mourn over her, for no man buys their merchandise anymore. The merchandise of gold and silver and precious things and of pearls and fine linen and purple and silk and scarlet and all thinine wood. And all manner of vessels of ivory and all manner of vessels of most precious wood and of brass and iron and marble. And cinnamon and olders and ointments and frankincense and wine and oil and fine flour and wheat, beasts, sheep, horses, chariots, slaves and souls of men. Now when you read this passage, it's about how Babylon had fallen and had received judgment in a single moment of time. And I believe that moment's going to come, that there's a spiritual Babylon that God is going to pour out judgment on this earth for. But this passage reads almost exactly like a major stock market crash. Now again, I'm not saying anything that's going to happen or not happen. I'm just... When I read this passage, like this is what comes to mind, that there was this major stock market crash in the merchants of the earth, that is the employers, uh, uh, the traders in the market, they wept over a lot of things. Uh, they wept over gold and silver and fine linen and purple, silk, scarlet, fine iron wood, all manner of vessels, ivory, etc., etc., etc. But the very last thing that was on their mind and the very last thing that they wept for were the soul's of men was the very last thing that was on their minds. And I ask you today, what are we most concerned about and what are we weeping for in 2020? 
We must get a razor focus on what God wants in this hour if we're going to experience the great revival that he wants us to have. Amen. And we have to be more concerned over the condition of our own souls and over the condition of the church. We've got to be concerned over, you know, the fact that he's coming soon. And there's a lot of people that hasn't yet heard this gospel. And Lord, whatever needs to happen, let your kingdom come. We have to get off of this mindset of, Lord, bless us, bless us, bless us. God has already blessed us, and his favor is not going to leave us. We don't have to pray for that. His blessing is on us as long as we're walking in the ways of God. But what we do need to pray for is, a, is for God to deepen our burden for what he wants us to do, for, what, for the work that he wants us to do. I believe that what we are going to see is a massive realignment in the church's uh, priorities with what God wants us to to have. I believe that we are going to see that. I believe that before there will ever come this great downpouring of revival, that God has first got to get the church where we where we are razor sharp focused on what God wants us to do and our priorities become what he wants us to have. Amen. Are we more like the early church or the Laodicean church? Revelation 3 and 17 says this, because you say I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing and know not that you're wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I counsel of thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire that you may be rich and white raiment that you may be clothed and that the shame and thy nakedness do not appear and anoint thine eyes with eye salve that you may see. The early church embraced persecution and trials whereas the Laodicean church fought for self-preservation and comfort. The early church was more than willing to embrace the things that that would cause the furtherance of the gospel, even if it meant their own discomfort. But the Laodicean church was set on their lease. They were laid back, and they were, they were fat from the blessings of God, and they did not have a burden for the lost, and they were not reaching their city. And God came to them, and he said, You know what? You're lukewarm because things have been going too well for you. And I wonder tonight if God just needs to kind of realign the church again to deepen our passion for what he really wants us to do. I tell you, God has a plan for this world. He's got a plan for this country. He's got a plan for this church. Amen. And we have to be red hot and on fire for what God wants us to do. If God is getting ready to bring us out of our comfort zones, I wonder, and put us in a place where our will must be realigned with his will, then a great revival would surely follow. Jesus said it like this as he looked at his disciples. And he began to talk about how the Son of Man is going to go into Jerusalem. And he's going to be betrayed by sinners. And he's going to be crucified, and he's going to die. And then he, he, he told them before it happened, he said, but on the third day I'm going to rise again. But that's not what they heard. They heard that he was going to be crucified and die. Peter said, Lord, be it far from me. Lord, be it far from thee. We want things to continue as they are. We want to sit around this fireplace. We want to just keep revi having revivals with you and keep having you do miracles. And Jesus said, no, 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 you don't understand what I'm going to do. I can keep going from city to city, and I can keep doing the miracles that I'm doing here. And, yeah, things will be well, but I'm, I'm getting ready to move this thing to a whole new level. And in order for that to happen, I've got to be crucified, and I've got to die. 
But on the third day, I'm going to rise up again. And it won't be long after that, just about 40 days later, when the day of Pentecost will come. And the Spirit's going to come on you. And you're going to do great things. Jesus had told them, you're going to do greater things than I did in that day. The Spirit's going to come upon you. And I tell you this, that we have seen revivals in our day from this time forward until, uh, you know, since, since that day. From Acts chapter 2, we've seen, uh, you know, we've seen pockets of revival. But we have not begun to see the divine shift that God is getting ready to do in this hour. And you know what? I don't know what's going to happen in the world. I don't know what's going to happen in the nation. I don't know if it's going to be more years like 2020, but I do know this. Jesus said, when you see all these things come to pass, he didn't say, look around and get worried and, and walk in fear. He said, look up, for your redemption is drawing nigh. Amen. Look up because it's getting ready to come. Jesus is getting ready to come. But before he comes, before that great day comes, there is going to be a downpouring of revival. But God has got to align his church first in order for there to be the mighty anointing upon it that God is getting ready to happen. Amen. The tendency within all of us is the fight for self-preservation. But Jesus said, we must die out and embrace his perfect will and pick up our cross and follow him. And so we need to get to the point where our prayers truly are from the bottom of our hearts. Thy kingdom come and thy will be done. Lord, you know, I've, I've been praying it for the past, you know, several days. Lord, whatever you've got to do to give us revival. Lord, let it happen, God. I want revival to happen in this church, not just this church, but I want it to happen worldwide because he will not come back until there is a downpouring of a mighty revival, a quick work, just as he said there is going to be. Amen. I'm done now. I just want to have a moment of prayer with you before, uh, uh, before we dismiss. Would you bow your heads there in the living room with me? Will you just pray with me? Lord, Lord Jesus, we just come before you right now. And I'm asking God for this word that you gave me, God, to be planted in, in the hearts of everybody, God. Lord, let us just reevaluate our motives, God, and the things, uh, Lord, you know, the goals, the desires, the ambitions, the things that we're shooting and trying for. And what would happen if we singularly focused just on doing your will and pursuing the anointing that you have for us, God. Lord, I pray right now, God, that you would just touch every one of us. Let your kingdom come. Let it happen in liberty, God. Let the mighty revival, Lord, that we know has been prophesied over and over again, God, and has, and has, been, uh, has been prayed for and preached for and wept for and fasted for. Let it happen and let us see it in our day, God. But as your word says, as, as soon as Zion travailed, she brought forth her children. And travailing can be painful. It is painful, but we know that there is something great that is going to yet to come. That is going to make us forget all the trials and all the troublesome times, Lord. We ask right now for strength and favor in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. God bless you all.